You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We'll be going to the book of Ephesians in your Bibles. Ephesians and the fourth chapter. This very important letter of the Apostle Paul, focusing on the church. That's what this letter is about, the church. God's purposes and plans in the church and his instructions for the church. We noted in the first three chapters, we have the doctrinal foundation set down. You can't exclude that. We have to be careful. We'll see this emphasis again in the section before us in chapter 4. The foundation for what God is doing with the church is revealed in the Word. If we aren't clear on what God says the church is and His instructions on how it is to conduct itself, then we're just subject to the whims of man. And ideas that people come up with, here's what the church ought to be. Here's how the church will be effective today. There are challenges for the church in every age, every day. Down through history, from the time Paul wrote this letter, there were challenges. The church at Ephesus was experiencing its own pressures and challenges in a pagan environment with open opposition to the word of God, yet they had to be the church At that time, all that God wanted it to be. So down through history, we come to our time where we are. God has raised us up as his church in this day. By that, I mean the church as it exists around the world today manifested in the variety of local churches wherever they are, which are to be a manifestation, each one of uh, what God is doing in building his church today. As we've moved into the application portion of this letter, if we could refer to it that way, after teaching the doctrine, he now says, here's how you are to live. And there's a reminder in this as he starts chapter four, we live consistent with the calling we have. That's the doctrine that was taught us in the first three chapters. And we are to be characterized in verse 2 with humility and gentleness, patience and tolerance. And we are to preserve the unity that the Spirit has produced, that only He can produce because it is a spiritual unity. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, You are cleansed, forgiven, and brought into a relationship with the living God. And into a relationship with others who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what comprises the church. So he emphasized the unity with that seven-time repetitive use of one in verses 4, 5, and 6. There's a oneness that characterizes us. But then in verse 7 of chapter 4, he began to emphasize the diversity that exists within the unity that we have. It's not a bland oneness, if you will, 
But there is a beauty, multifaceted, multicolored diversity in the church as God has brought it together. So in verse 7, to each one of us, each individual believer who is part of this unified body of believers, each one of us, grace was given. This grace Something unmerited, undeserved, unearned. We noted as we work through this, this was given when the Spirit of God took up residence in our bodies. And that was when we placed our faith in Christ. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has measured out the proper gift for each one of us by his grace. In his sovereign plan, how we would fit and function in the fellowship of believers where he would place us. There are a variety of individual local churches, but he has fit us in to the one that he has put us a part of. When did this happen? Goes back, found it again. We go back to the doctrine. It says, and he quotes from Psalm 68 and makes an application here. The church is not found in the Old Testament, but the truth of God is applicable at all times. Must be properly applied, but it is profitable for us, and we learn from it. And when Christ, when his victory ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit. Remember, we looked into John's Gospel, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus said, it's important that I go through the process of death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, because when I go back to heaven to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And that's what will mark the beginning of the church. That happens in Acts chapter 2, as we have our Bibles. So he defeated Satan and all his hosts. That's in that host of captives, those who had held as unbelievers in their control. The whole world lies in the evil one under his control. He's the God, small g, of this world. And we looked back into the previous section of Ephesians, the opening verses of chapter 2 that described our being held captive, enslaved to sin and Satan. But they were defeated. His power was broken. He gave gifts to men. And if we could express it this way, the first most important gift is that of the Holy Spirit, who he sent from heaven. And when the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, he came also with a gift to enable you to fit in the body. That's why the body is... Most often used metaphors or pictures of the church. It's like our physical body. It's one body, but it has multiple parts, all making a contribution. So the body can function as it should. He gave gifts to men. That's our spiritual gifts. They're grace gifts. Because the word for gifts is built on the word grace. They are grace gifts. So you don't earn it. 
You don't think, well, if I'm faithful, God will give me a more important gift. Every gift is important because it's what God has given. Just like on our body, it don't change. The toe doesn't decide, well, if I keep working, I'll get out of this sock and shoe and get to become something more visible and uh, important. No, every part is there from the beginning. We don't always know at the beginning. In fact, probably none of us knew. We maybe knew some of the more prominent gifts that we've been exposed to. But over time, as we function, it becomes clear how God is using us, where we're most effective, and how he is using us in the greatest possible way. Verses 9 and 10, you're using New American Standard Bible, have that marked off as a parenthesis. I think that gives the idea because he's going to just explain again, and it's going to take us back to the first three chapters. Now, this expression, he ascended, referring to his ascension in Acts chapter 1, where he returned back to the Father, be seated at his right hand. He ascended, what does it mean, except that he also had descended into or unto the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What he's talking about here, I take it with this descending into the lower parts of the earth at the end of verse 9. The Apostles' Creed, some of you, if you're from a more formal church, Lutheran or one of those, they often recite the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the Apostles. It's hundreds of years after the Apostles. But in the Apostles' Creed, as it's noted, and it's a good creed, but in it, it makes the statement, he descended into hell. And that's built into people's mind that Christ, after his death on the cross, went down to hell and freed the captives there, Old Testament saints that couldn't go to heaven until Christ died, then took them to heaven. We've dealt with this on other occasions. I don't think that's what this is saying. In fact, I don't think there's any indication in Scripture that Christ went into hell. The captives here are the defeated enemies, Satan and his host. We looked at that in Colossians chapter 2, which was written about the same time, where uh, he demonstrated his victory over Satan and his host. So what he's talking about, Christ came down to the earth and was a man, and was buried in a grave on this earth. Um, If he had just come to earth, lived a perfect life, and then returned to heaven, there would be no salvation because the penalty for sin is death. The Old Testament anticipated this when it said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Christ had to die. So that's the point. He not only came to this earth, but he died. Come back to Isaiah 44. We're not going to look at many passages, but Isaiah 44. You see this contrast. Look at verse 23. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout, O joy, you mountains. You see, he's comparing from the lowest parts of the earth 
to the highest parts, the mountains down to the valleys, the lower parts of the earth. They're not talking about going into perhaps the center of the earth or into hell or something like that. But he's talking about the lower parts of the earth. So when Christ left heaven, he came down to this earth. And when he came to this earth, he died and was buried in this earth. But then he ascended to heaven. Come back to the New Testament. Come over to Philippians. You're in Ephesians. So just come to the next book, Philippians. Remember, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians were written about the same time when Paul was a prisoner in Rome. It's recorded at the end of the book of Acts. And in Philippians chapter 2, he's instructing the believers in the church at Philippi about their conduct and how they are to conduct themselves. They are to be of one mind, verse 2. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Very similar to what we saw beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, that oneness. We've been bound together. You maintain that unity. You have the same mind. We think alike. We have our diversity. But when it comes to the basic important things, our spiritual life, Our spiritual conduct, these things we are united in. We have one purpose. We have lives individually and corporately that bring honor to God. We don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. We saw that in the opening verses of Ephesians 4. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God. We noted Isaiah 6. There I saw the Lord, lofty and exalted, sitting on his throne. The seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. In John's gospel, chapter 12, we're told that was Jesus Christ enthroned in glory. Before he humbled himself and was born into the human race. So he existed in the form of God. He did not require equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He left that glory to be born into the human race. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even at death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, given him a name above every name. That's the way Ephesians 1 ended. He is head over all things, and particularly to the church. So you see the parallel. He left the glory of heaven. He became a man. He humbled himself to death. Buried in a tomb, but three days later, he's raised from the dead and he's exalted to the highest position. So it's the same theology he's talking about. That's foundational to everything. That's what the church is. Well, people talk about the church they go to. It may be comprised of unbelievers who are meeting in a building they call the church. So the name may continue on, even though... It's a 
association of people who have no spiritual life in Christ. Oh, important the foundation for what makes us the church. Come back to Ephesians 4. So verses 9 and 10 just remind us of the doctrine that was talked about in the first three chapters. Because as we noted, everything depends on our being in Christ, in a living relationship with him, united to him. So after that further elaboration, he gave gifts to men, having conquered the devil. Remember John chapter 12? Now the prince of this world will be judged. He'll be cast out. He'll be defeated. Now his influence is not yet over. But now through faith in Christ, we've been set free, no longer under his authority, no longer controlled by sin. With that, he sent the Spirit. The Spirit indwells every believer as well as indwelling the church corporately. And every individual is given a gift. So verse 7 of chapter 4 said, To each one of us grace was given. He's talking about a grace gift here. As Christ measured out that gift of grace. Now you had that theological explanation in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Which just really took you back to the first three chapters. If you go back and reread those. Of what Christ has accomplished. So then verse 11 He picks up with what he said in verse 7. The gifts were measured out. Verse 11. He gave some. And now he's going to talk about the gifts. Some of the gifts, he's not going to name them all. We noted Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 are the key chapters along with Ephesians 4. There are numerous gifts. A variety of gifts that show the multifaceted, and sometimes we refer to it as the multicolored grace of God, a beautiful diversity. You know, God has made the beauty of his diversity in his creation, but somehow man thinks he's accomplishing something if he can make it all the same. We're doing this with gender issues. It's a beauty in the diversity God created man as male and female. But we just want to do away with that. Uh, We want to be careful. In the church, there's a beautiful diversity. And it gives us an appreciation of one another. That's why we can see each other as more important than ourselves. Because we appreciate that each one is making a special contribution in a way that I don't. And that gives me a greater appreciation for that other person. That's what he's talking about here. So Christ has measured out the gift. And what he does, he gave in verse 11, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And on that goes in that sentence. This is what we've come to a lot because we call it the philosophy of the church or the theology of the church. Here's where you go to find out what the church is and how it is to function and operate. They're endless. My emails, always somebody coming up to hear how the church can grow, how your church can be more effective. 
there's a beautiful simplicity in it. If we're not careful, we get swept along because of the tide of the day, and we're told, well, this is a different day, a different culture. You'll note Paul had the same way of operating no matter where he was. When he was in Jerusalem, a Jewish center. When he was where Ephesus is, an Asia Minor, same ministry. When he crossed over into Greece, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he told the Corinthians. Don't say, well, now, this is a different group. We're in a different culture. We have to make the adjustments or we won't be effective. No, there is one message. There's one God. And I bring the truth from him to you. Now, the only the spirit can drive that home to a heart. We can appreciate there are different foods in different places that people like. Many years ago, I was in China. We're having breakfast. I'm going to order a pancake. I don't think they do pancakes. I waited. It must have taken an hour. Finally, they brought out three little round balls. That was my pancake. Now, maybe that's changed. Another thing I noticed, the Chinese food I ordered in China was not like the Chinese food I order here. Um, what is this? Well, it's what you ordered. In fact, I couldn't order. I just pointed to the picture and they brought it. So that's fine. Every culture has its name, you know. They don't have to be like an American in China or, you know, the different parts of the world. Those aren't the issues. But the truth we bring to those people wherever we go is the same truth. Now, I may need a translator when I'm a different country because they speak a different language, but it's the same truth conveyed in their language. So what Paul's going to lay out here are some of the gifts. Now, I want you to go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, almost toward the back of your Bible. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is near. And this chapter reminded us it's based on verse 1 of chapter 4. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. And on he goes, our identification with Christ, our death and burial with Christ to be raised in new life. So we've died to sin. We're alive now to God. So now we live a new life. This truth just permeates the scripture. Here we are with Peter writing. But it's basically the same biblical truth. You come down to verse 10. As each one has received a gift. You have the word special added there. But it is a gift. It's a grace gift. Employ it in serving one another. Your gift is not for your benefit. Although... You know, obviously, there's profit to you as you exercise it. But it's given primarily as a way of serving others. Doing what is good and best for others. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold. There's our word, that manifold, multifaceted, multicolored grace of God. 
That's the beauty of it, the diversity. How God would bring us together with our differences. Come from different backgrounds, different situations, sometimes from a different country. I know it when I have been in another country. It's amazing. There's a bond together with believers. And whether you're talking through a translator or talking to someone who's learned English, that I didn't know there, there is a connection. And pretty soon there's an excitement because you're talking about the same truth, the same Lord, the same salvation. Walking in a park when I was in China, I had been in that park. It was across from our hotel and a Chinese man came walking up and he could speak English. He started to engage me very carefully because he wanted to be careful who might hear, but he was a believer. And from what I had been talking about in another context that he overheard, he says, you're a Christian. He identified himself. Then he could talk about things we had in common. We could have been walking down a street here. But he had special things he had to deal with there. And uh, you talked about that. But there is that bond, that oneness. Each one, we belong to him. Now as he's brought us together in this church, we function together in a regular basis. It's a cohesive whole carrying out the ministry God's given us. That was enjoyable and profitable. But that was just a passing time. We are together one in Christ. But what he was dealing with and the issues he had to focus were not exactly the same as I had here. But we were walking the same walk and obedience to the word. So you employ your gift as a good steward. This is important because when we stand before the beam of seat, we will give an account. We've been entrusted with a stewardship. God didn't just give us that gift and then we decide whether we'll use it or not. How much we'll use it? That's a stewardship. Remember, we are slaves in the house of the master. Use another analogy. We've been entrusted with a responsibility. We will be called to give an account for our stewardship. Jesus used that in one of his parables. Those who had been given talents, which was money. And how faithful they were. And you know, one just buried it. Uh, No, that's not acceptable. God gave us this gift to be used to serve others, which will bring glory to him. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. There are parameters for the gifts. They may not make you more effective in your, quote, secular job. You manifest God's character in all you do, but the exercising your gift is in the context of our functioning together. We'll talk about the gift of evangelist in a moment. Whoever speaks, the utterances of God. If I have the gift of a teacher, exhortation, one of the speaking gifts, you speak the word of God. I don't have to be creative, measured out the gifts, different Men don't all just speak the same way. But all who are gifted with a speaking gift have to be speaking the word of God, giving that out. The utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength with God supplies. Now, in a note here, because this is, fits where we are in Ephesians 4, Peter doesn't go into the gifts in any detail. 
He just breaks them down into two major groups, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Now, you could say, well, the speaking gift is a way of serving the body. It is, but he breaks it into two classifications, gives it involved communicating the word of God. And then the gifts that all the other gifts that are involved in enabling the body to function as it should. I say that because what Paul does in Ephesians 4 on this occasion, he just selects out the speaking gifts. In writing to the Corinthians, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, he gives a list of the variety of gifts. Does so in Romans 12 as well. So here he breaks them down. Note the end of verse 11. The proper use of the the stewardship that has been entrusted to us is so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Very important that the church function as it should. Every individual part, every part in coordination with the rest. Because the ultimate goal of all is to bring glory to God. And this is God's plan and the way he's working to bring glory to himself through Christ. And it doesn't get any more important than this. The church must function as God created it to function. If he is to get the glory in what is going on. Sometimes we get weak. We think we're not under the Mosaic law, so we have a freedom. There's a proper way that's theologically correct, but we have to be careful. We act like just everybody's free to do what they want and the way they want. There's no that kind of freedom. Israel was held responsible to the revelation God had given, primarily the Mosaic law. In the New Testament, we have what we call the law of Christ, New Testament truth, what we're studying in Ephesians. That is no more optional for the church than obeying the Mosaic law was for Israel. I get the idea that since we're not under the law, we, you know, I have the spirit, I do what I want. No, we all have to do what God says. Now, we're not under the Mosaic law. But we are under the law of Christ. The instructions he's giving here are telling us what? Verse 10, as each one has received a grace gift, employ it in serving one another. Is that optional? No. If your gift is serving, you serve. If it's speaking, you speak. We're stewards. We've been entrusted with a special grace from God. It is not optional. I have to serve with the gift he's given me where he puts me. Now, he may move me from one place to another. Obviously, he does. Most of you move from one place to another. I had family in New Jersey many years ago. They thought maybe the Lord should keep me in New Jersey. Everybody wants their family together. But we have to be where God wants us. That's why sometimes people say, I think the Lord's moving me to another church. Well, I hate to see you go. But I don't want you here if this is not where the Lord wants you. 
We have to be where the Lord wants us, but we ought to be careful. We're doing it in light of the word. And this is all about bringing glory to God through Christ. We so individualize that we forget the corporate responsibility we have. The unity that God has put us into. We want to be sure we're clear on that. For a person who says that they don't think they have to be part of the church, can still be a faithful believer, that is not true. Now, if you have physical reasons, you're homebound, there are other reasons that come, of course. God works his purposes. We talked a little bit about that. Maybe he keeps you bound at home so you'll be focused more on prayer for the body. Don't know. But it's just not optional. I don't come because it's more comfortable not to be there. It's not an option. It wasn't an option for the Israelites. They were bound in a nation and in a tribe. They weren't even allowed to sell their own land outside of their own tribe. And not yours. You don't make these decisions. So God says, no, you can't do that. Now we have responsibility. We have obligations. So come back to Ephesians 4. If we were going to just do this on our own, there wouldn't have to be the multiplicity of gifts. We're saying God's way is not the way it has to be. Now, I have the Spirit. I have my Bible. That's all it takes. Well, that may be what someone says, but it's not what God says. So we're going to come back and see the importance of this. So he gives some as apostles, some as prophets. We've already seen these two gifts back up to chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, just before chapter 3. Verse 20. We're having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We noted the thing that characterizes both of these gifts is they receive direct revelation from God, but they are distinct gifts. Apostles seems a broader gift. Paul not only received revelation from God, but he was entrusted with the authority of establishing churches, organizing those churches, but he received direct revelation. We saw that in chapter 3. That truth concerning the church had been directly revealed to him. And we observed the communion service last week. Paul said, I receive from the Lord what I have given to you, instructed you on this. So he received. Prophets, they received direct revelation that was used to encourage the people, but don't seem to maybe have the breadth of responsibility. So there is a diversity even when gifts overlap. And gifts would overlap. So apostles and prophets, I take it those gifts are no longer present because there's no longer direct revelation being given with the completion of the word of God. And even as Paul wrote, there's a uniqueness to that. He didn't write as though it was a common thing for believers to be receiving revelation. He had to explain to these Ephesians why he had this additional new information. God revealed it to him As an apostle, it was part of his gift, as he explained in chapter 3. So apostles and prophets, and they are foundational for the church. They were there at the beginning, and we are continuing to build on that foundation. The truth they gave, what are we studying? Ephesians, a revelation given to the apostle Paul. I don't have any new revelation to give you. Now, we have additional revelation 
Almost 30 years after Paul's executed, the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation. There is additional revelation given, but that was given through another apostle. So that position and importance of these gifts. The next gift here is not one mentioned often. In fact, there are only three references, I believe, to this gift in the New Testament, evangelists. It's just basically a form of the word gospel. They're gospelizers. And Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't say he has the gift of evangelist, but he was to do the work of an evangelist. He used to share the gospel as all of us do. But evangelists seem to be those who carry the gospel to new places. We pick that up because Philip in the book of Acts is called Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 21. So we know he was an evangelist. Earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip being used to bring the gospel to new people in new places. So with the very word based on euangelizo, which is just the gospel, good news, the good message. An evangelist is one who brings the good news. Obviously, that would be focused on unbelievers, carrying it to new places. We may all do that. Evangelists will be one that focuses more on that and will perhaps be more effective. The thing about apostles, they are multi-gifted, which helped with their authority. Remember, when it came to miracle gifts, Paul said, I have them. I've performed miracles among you. That shows I'm an apostle. So there was a uniqueness Paul, speaking in tongues, I've done that. Speaking in a language I'd learned, I've done that too. So it showed the apostles were given a realm of authority and the validation of their authority going with the new revelation they were given that would enable them to authority because it wasn't, well, I have this gift, so you don't have it. With an apostle like Paul, the miracle gifts We've looked at that on other occasions, so we haven't gone back through that this time. But that's connected to new revelation. You'll see even Philip, the evangelist, has miracles associated with his. He'll just disappear from the scene and appear at another place in Acts chapter 8. You can read that. But evangelists carry the gospel. We won't get on the sidetrack here, but I think we find when people went in, with the gospel, whether it's Paul, whether it's others, whether it's someone like Philip the Evangelist, they had a focus. Remember, Paul said, I determine nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Something has happened. I get some missionary letters. Used to be they'd talk about sharing the gospel. For years, nothing's ever included about the gospel there, and I never have read of anyone who's trusted any Christ in it. We've turned it in often to a social ministry of trying to improve the conditions of people where they are and we have various kinds of that kind of ministry that gets called missions we want to be careful 
Paul said, I went to Corinth. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He comes to carry the gospel. This whole social thing, we talk about it a lot, but it has permeated missions. We talk about its danger here for churches. We have to be careful that we don't lose our focus. Paul went into Ares and preached the gospel. He went to Athens, but there wasn't the response of the gospel. He moved on. He didn't figure, well, we got to develop a ministry here of upgrading their living conditions and helping with their health problems, get Dr. Luke in here, and oh, then maybe they'll be here. We're moving on. Spirit uses the word. So I think we want to understand God's provided the gifts necessary for what he wants to do. All of us are to be testimonies wherever we are because we're lights in the darkness. And I want to share the gospel. I've shared a number of times that the desire of my heart was to be an evangelist. That's what got me interested in the ministry way back when I was a high school student. Sharing the gospel, this is what I have to do. I thought I'm going to be an evangelist. Through my years of schooling, I still thought that's what I was going to do, and that's what I enjoyed the most. Then I sat down, evaluated. Where is the Lord using me? How is he using me? Oh, Lord, you know, I don't want to have to speak to the same people every week, week in and week out. Just wouldn't be very interesting. But the Lord pointed, that's what I will do. Because I had a look. You know, I like sharing the gospel. And I could say I've seen some people come to know Christ, but not what I would expect if I had the gift of evangelist. Goal wasn't to determine that's what I'm going to be, no matter what. I'm going to be what God appoints me to do. It was sharing the word, but it was a little different way. And part of that transition was having me pastor a small church while I was a seminary student. It gave me a greater appreciation of the regular ministry. All I'm saying is you find where God is using you and how he's using you. You say, well, that's what the Lord has for me. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's been some misunderstanding of this gift. Part of it came because some of the Greek grammars, and then some of us who are reading the Greek grammars pick up, and they sometimes said, well, this is Granville Sharp's rule of grammar, but it's not. Granville Sharp's rule of grammar does not apply to plural nouns. Now, that's not making any sense to many of you, but what it basically means is Pastors and teachers are not just talking about one gift. They are distinct. But the structure here is they are closely related. So most of the modern grammars would say that all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Pastors will be involved in teaching, but not all teachers will be pastors. The distinction in the two gifts, pastors are shepherds, that's the word. They are shepherding God's people. They have the oversight. It's used interchangeably with the word elder, overseer, or bishop. Those words are used interchangeably. Come back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul here is sending for the elders of the church at Ephesus. He administered the gospel at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You can see some of the challenges there. We looked at that. We started Ephesians. Now he's going to have a brief stop. And he calls for the elders to meet him. He doesn't want to uh, journey into Ephesus. 
but he wants to meet with the elders of the church at this brief stop. Verse 17, from Miletus, he called to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So he had appointed elders, elders or shepherds, we'll see. They have the responsibility for oversight. When he comes to them, he talks and he gives his example and uh, what he was doing the whole time he spent three years there was teaching them the word of God. Verse 21, solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And down the end of verse 24, that was the ministry God gave him to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That's what God appointed and gifted me to do. That's what I do. So I'm innocent. Uh, The results are not Paul's responsibility. Faithfulness to carry out what God has given him to do. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The end of verse 24 was similar to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's, the grace of God. He didn't change the truth. And that's what I spent my years there at Ephesus, ministering God's word. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, verse 27. Now he tells the elders he's passing on the responsibility because he's going to go off the scene and ultimately the apostles will go off the scene. Elders were appointed to pick up the shepherding responsibility of these churches. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Go through this, and it's good to go through it when we're not in conflict, but every conflict comes to this. Will we follow the leaders or won't we? Every time, it's just like Israel in the Old Testament. They grumble against Moses. It's a constant battle. I can look back over 50-some years of ministry and the six or seven major battles. I can say the elders were faithful to the word. Now, those who left for one reason or another, between them and the Lord, not saying everybody who ever leaves is unfaithful. I'm saying we better be careful. We act like this is nothing. That's what the Israelites thought. Number 16, Korah thought, God's made all of us holy. You and Moses and Aaron, we're all holy. Who put you in charge? Who said, you know what's best? We're not real happy with the way things are going. And he got 250 men of renown who stood out in Israel to join with him. And you're familiar with what happened. God brought serious judgment on that. Now, again, I'm going to be careful. I don't go out and say, oh, Gil said everybody who ever left Indian Hills was wrong. But we don't take seriously enough. We act like it's, well, you know, I don't agree, so I don't do it. I've shared with you. I've had pastors, uh, people in from other churches I start out telling them, I'm not an elder at that church. I have no authority there. God's appointed elders there. If they're not telling you to do anything unbiblical, forbidding you to do anything biblical, then let the elders be the elders. People say, do you agree with the elders? Well, it's not my decision. I support the elders. They'll give an account for what they do. We could have navigated through so many uh, disastrous conflicts if people would just say, God's appointed the elders. 
I mention this. I don't have any particular because I know the next battle will come because everyone comes and it comes down to the same thing. I don't agree with the elders. What's the doctrinal issue? What's not a doctrinal issue? Where do we go from here? In other words, it's everybody's opinion. And I follow the elders when their opinion agrees with my opinion. If it's not a doctrinal issue, move on. Did somebody bring me a whole folder from another church that I'm well familiar with? And you got to know what this is going on here. You and the elders have to address it. I said, we don't have to address it. We're not elders there. You can take your folder back. I have no reason to read it. What would I do with it? Try to overrule the elders God's appointed for that church? I had someone come from out of town, from a church, and he wanted to talk the same thing. And I said, look, I'm not an elder there. I have no authority there. God didn't appoint me there. God's appointed godly men in your church. Is this a doctrinal issue? Well, no, it doesn't involve me personally. Well, then stay out of it. God's appointed elders. He didn't make you an elder, did he? No. Are they saying you have to do something that's not biblical? No. Well, then what's your problem? Well, I don't know if I agree. What well, doesn't matter if you agree. God didn't make you an elder. So I say go home, pray for the elders, thank God for godly men to provide leadership. Anybody ask you, do you agree with the elders? Say, that's not the right question. I want you to know I support the elders. That's why God gives them. Here's what the elders have to do. Verse 28, they have to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They can't abandon that responsibility under pressure. They can't yield to the flock. And I've been in this. We've sat as elders and say, when would we lose so many people we couldn't keep the doors open anymore? Well, if you decide, then we'd give up. If it got down to this point, then you've lost the battle. If we've determined what's biblical, then we will die on this hill. And if the Lord closes this church down, better close down than going to a false uh, direction, an unbiblical direction. You're to shepherd the church of God with the purchase with his own blood. This is important to God. I've had men come, pastors come, that want to talk about elders. I say, one thing you have to have with elders. Any godly man can be an elder, but you'll have to have godly men on your board of elders that will be able to withstand the pressure that when things become unsettled, when the heat's turned up, they will stay faithful to the truth because that's what they are to do. It's God's church. He purchased it with his own blood. Does it get any more important than that? Then he appoints the men to oversee it. The battles are going to come. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Verse 32, I commend you to God in the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and so on. We're talking about shepherds. But somehow it becomes, you know, if enough of the sheep talk together, then we're justified. 
in not following the elders. You know, if God wants a person in another church, they ought to get there and be there. But I have had some people complain about Indian Hills people. We're going to talk about ourselves because they say, all they want to do is talk about what's wrong in Indian Hills. I don't care, they said. We care about our church, our ministry. So if the Lord's leading you to another church, that's all you have to say. No, the Lord was leading us to another ministry, and we're here to be used of God and help this ministry be the best it can. What am I going to do? Try to unsettle other ministries? Tell people, yeah, don't follow the elders there. Elders have a great responsibility. When we talk about the gifts God's given, there's a responsibility that goes with it. The shepherds have to shepherd. That's true. Moses had to lead Israel, Aaron, and then the 70 elders with him eventually, regardless of what the sheep wanted to do. Now be careful. They're not a magisterium. It has a biblical truth. The problem is most of it, I've shared that people will say, well, it's not doctrinal. Well, you know what we do? We put it out there in the realm of our feelings and what I think and how I would do it. I want to be careful. These are gifts given for a purpose, a stewardship which has a kind of accountability and a responsibility. And with that, we'll go to the word. Come back to Titus 1 and we'll have to stop here. Titus chapter 1. Why you need elders and why you need men who are elders who will be able to withstand the pressure. And he's talking about Titus was left in Crete, another location here, local churches, to appoint elders, verse 5 of Titus 1, in every city as I directed to you. Then he gives some of the personal responsibility, uh, character responsibilities. Verse 9, then they are to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accord with the teaching so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers. They have to be silenced. Verse 11, because they upset whole families. So that's part of the elders' responsibility. Keep the church on track, biblically. What is the biblical issue here? It's where the elders end up having to spend the bulk of their time and issues come up. We have to sort through what the scripture says here. And once we've settled on what the scripture says, that's what we will do. And the fallout, what can you do? The people decide, I will not follow. I had a person come sit in my office, look at me and say, I don't consider you a godly man. I won't listen to you. Well, I guess you'll move on. I'm not saying the Lord doesn't move his people. They're his people. If he wants them in another work, I wrote an email to someone and said, you know, miss you here, but we're all slaves in the house of the master. You have to be where the Lord wants you to be, where you can be used of him. All right, we'll leave it there with the gifts and we'll pick up as he moves on to show how this, the proper use of all the gifts, will bring the body to It's a point of maturity. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. Thank you for the challenges that come with being a faithful church. And Lord, for each one of us to appreciate your grace given to each one. 
for us to appreciate one another and to be an encouragement and help to one another so that your spirit can use us first in one another's lives and then in a testimony before a watching world. Pray your blessing on the day before us. We look forward to the evening. Pray the Spirit will use these truths in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.